0: Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. My graduate advisor, Sean S. Bjorn Hargens, who was the guest on episode 60, is back today to talk about one of the most, I think, interesting, confounding, and promising areas of inquiry I can imagine And that is the stubbornly resistant to rational investigation phenomenon of the UFO and, by extension, all kinds of weird shit around UFO, including things like Mothman, DMT, insectoid entities, the curious case of Skinwalker Ranch and its bizarre panoply of paranormal phenomena. As Sean puts it, if there is ever a place where multiple perspectives run amok, bumping into each other and in general creating chaos, it is around aliens and the craft they pilot. I mean, we know that that may not even be the appropriate way of talking about these things, that there is something about these phenomena that refuse to reside neatly into the over simple categories of subjective or objective knowledge. And so for a show committed to exploring where we are in the midst of a series of cascading paradigm shifts, it seems only right that the conversation's orbit would return again and again to the dragons at the edges of our maps. And of course, anyone who's been listening to this show has heard me tell a few stories about my own puzzling, potentially alien encounters. In fact, the first podcast I ever participated in was Eric Davis's Expanding Mind way back in 2011. And we spent most of that hour talking about those experiences and where they fit or don't fit into our clearly insufficient categories. So it's with delight that I bring Sean back on the show today to talk about the new course he'll be leading in the fall on Exo Studies as a fabulous touchpoint for some deep, challenging philosophical inquiries into the nature of knowledge and the mind. But before we start, I want to thank every one of you who has been supporting the show on Patreon and the six new people. Damian Everett, Jamie Gaviola, Henry Anderson, Sean Thompson, Jeff Gould, and Will Franke, who have joined on as Patreon supporters this week, bringing me that much closer to my goal of 200 supporters, not just an arbitrary number, but the number at which point this show will be paying my rent If you're interested in partaking in the Future Fossils Book Club, that's one of many things that I do for supporters of this show, and we just had an excellent conversation about Diana Slattery's book Xenolinguistics, Psychedelics, Language, and the Evolution of Consciousness, which could not be more relevant to today's conversation that recording as well as the recording of the first book club on blindsight by peter watts another encounter with the truly other both of those are up on patreon for anyone at any level and i am finally ready to release a series of patreon exclusive secret episodes of this show i've been keeping in down in the wine cellar for some time now i've recently found the time to edit those so you'll be seeing those too if you're a supporter of this show also thanks to everyone who has been rating and or reviewing the show wherever you listen to podcasts the more ratings the more reviews we can get up on iTunes the more alluring an opportunity it is for high profile guests to join these conversations the easier it is to continue growing the audience of this show and the fabulous conversations that we have in our facebook group so it's not just some sort of empty social media metric you know 500 likes but it really does help me continue to grow this audience and to bring new interesting people into the discussion then uh, pop on over to itunes click subscribe click five stars you've done me and yourself a service i believe Now that I'm done saying that, I'm going to go rinse my mouth out and pray for your forgiveness. (laughs) And while I'm doing that, enjoy this fabulous conversation with Sean S. Bjorn Hargens of exostudies.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Sean, it is a pleasure to have you back on Future Fossils.
1: Yeah, it's good to be back, Michael, as always.
0: Yeah, so let's see, a year ago, we were talking about your business consultation work and your efforts to apply a sort of meta approach to value assessments and and look at the way that bringing new perspectives to how we understand different types of capital or different types of wealth are going to transform the way that we, we practice business and are living with one another. But today we get <laughs> to take it into what at first I think seems like the complete opposite total freak show right. direction and, and, uh, and talk about your long-standing and now uh, fruiting interest in the extraterrestrial lore. Yeah. So, um, I'd love to start by just inviting you to explain why it took you so long to admit to the world that you are as interested in unidentified aerial phenomena and ostensible alien encounters as you are.
1: Yeah. Great. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's as if our first show, as you mentioned, which was focusing on the meta impact framework and the 10 types of capital that we use a meta integral to explore value accounting that That show is basically about my day job and, <laughs> and this show is about kind of the the music I play at night and you know smoke filled bars and <laughs> you know exploring kind of the the fringe of of human experience and and possibilities yeah you know I think it's it's a great place to start. you know why did it take me so long and I think it speaks to one of the core aspects of this phenomenon, uh, and by that I mean you know not just. The UFO ET hypothesis, but kind of all paranormal realities. Because when you really start going into the UFO field, at least with an open heart and mind, you come across some really crazy shit and, you know, incredible people saying totally crazy, you know, extraordinary things. And you, at least for me, as I've been roaming the, the range of literature um, in this field, like it is a freak show. Like there, there are so many bizarre claims being made by you know stand up citizens and who are quite believable in what they're saying, even though what they're saying just does not map on to our general view of reality. Even for me as an integralist, even for me who's you know way into transpersonal psychology and you know extraordinary states of consciousness, right? You know, so I'm pretty far out there. For most people and this stuff is even farther out right and so i've i've kind of landed on this phrase that i enjoy which is you know the truth is stranger than science fiction right it's not just stranger than fiction it's stranger than science fiction which you know if you think about that it's a pretty incredible claim and so there's this huge taboo right socially professionally around this topic because it it bumps up against as a direct confrontation to our materialist paradigm and in general consensus reality, um, and there's a lot of ways in which that view is policed um, by academic institutions, by professional establishments, and you know and arguably maybe for some good reasons, but I think we're at a point where we need to kind of reconsider <laughs> that and push back a little bit so it took me a while just because I needed to really cook in the juices, and basically what what happened, why I came out, right, of the, the UFO ET geek closet was I just was going so deep into this material that it activated what I call a soul impulse. And it, the impulse is just basically the sense of like, I got to say something because otherwise I'm out of integrity. Like the, there, there's something so important here. This taps into so many essential philosophical and scientific and psychological and sociological issues that... I I am violating a contract with myself um, at a deep level if I don't risk it and come out and at least say a few things. So so here we are. Um, this is my second live show. Um, and uh, let me pause there just to get your engagement.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that comes up for me is I've been reading Xenolinguistics. Diana oh, yeah, that, that book
1: is amazing.
0: Yeah, and there is that section where she talks about how she conducted all of her psychonautic research alone and secretly and that it was a real challenge for her to come out of the the psychedelic closet and admit that she had been, you know, channeling these scripts from the other, you know, for the last decade and had that it had deeply informed uh, her PhD thesis. And, but she says, you know, Lorenzo Haggerty, host of psychedelic salon says, you know, the closet is full. (laughs) you know there's too many people in there already and and there is something you know i think your willingness to i don't i i really don't know at this point in your career now that you've sort of stepped out of the academic sphere just how much is really on the line for you yeah uh in terms of this this decision uh i think that you're in a much better position to to speak to an area of broad cultural resonance but you know, there is that, uh, that sense in which really any kind of challenge to the dominant paradigm requires people willing to make that risk. So I commend you. The other, yeah. part, of it, the other part of it, though, is that um, in discussing these things, and like, you know, I, I, I'll link in the show notes to the interview that you did with Jeff Salzman for Daily Evolver. Where yeah. You go over sort of the, the you know, the, the broad brushstrokes strokes of an argument for why this is a necessary conversation.
1: Mm, You know, not
0: so much why this is an objective fact and why there's this Sean's interpretation and this is what's going on. But like, you just touch the bullet points of all of the people whose prestige has been accredited by the system that we believe, whose authority we place our lives in the hands of every day. You know, the like, military generals, nuclear technicians, these, you know, Harvard physicists like Avi Loeb, you know, people that are, that, you know, society says to trust these people. And yet there is this issue with not being willing to follow their authority all the way to its, Mm -hmm. where it actually leads us. And then on top of that, because this is a common issue we discuss on the show, there's no real way uh, you know, you are such an exemplary scholar and you've spent, you know, decades researching this, read hundreds of books. There's no way to compress right. the understanding <laughs> that you come to. Right. Uh, you know, y- y- there's no way for you to convince anyone of anything, yeah. given the time that, you know, the, the time of a conversation. So that's, I don't know, that that's just sort of like sort of two sort of challenges to having this conversation in the first place.
1: Yeah. And... You know, I suspect there is a lot on the line for me. You know, I run, you know, an arguably mainstream progressive business consultancy. And I suspect at some point a client is going to come across, you know, some of these conversations. And I imagine I'm going to have more. And so there's going to be a body material that builds up over the years. And, you know, it'll be interesting just to see how that plays out. You know, so so there is a sense of, of risk. But like you pointed out, you know, I'm no longer, you know, a professor at a university and you know, and so there's not some of those types of, you know, kind of knowledge policing dynamics that might be at play you know, the way a lot of other people experience that. Um, you know, John Mack being the obvious poster boy for that dynamic at Harvard, you know, when he came out with his research on you know, abductees and, you know, and, and was pretty even-handed and, you know, wasn't taking a strong stance on aliens per se as, as much as he was saying something powerful is going on here and we need to be open to it and we need to take seriously the things that these people are saying. And they're not, you know, delusional, they're not psychiatric, they're not, you know, falling into those categories and yet he got pummeled, you know. So, I think that the visibility of that episode has made a lot of people such as me who start kind of, you know, wading into these waters and kind of looking around for signals of like, am I okay? Is this going to be all right? And we see those kinds of examples and it makes us think twice. But as you pointed out, the closet's full. And one of the things that's really encouraged me, you know, I had the soul impulse, which was just like, you know, Sean, open your mouth, you know, say something. So I started doing that. And Every time I've done that, and I'm, you know, I'm visible primarily in the integral community, as you know, though I run in a few other circles, but you know, in the integral community, I've been met with a lot of individuals just really thanking me and telling me their own experiences and basically coming out of the closet to me, not publicly, but there's been so many of them, and many of them are very visible individuals in our integral community, um, you know, many of whom you would know. And yet they're not on the public record on this topic. And yet they're confiding in me because I've stuck my neck out. And that highlights for me that this is a topic that needs to be discussed because there are too many people who are having kind of like, you know, Diane was in xenolinguistics, you know, are doing their little thing kind of off on the side. and, And it's really changing how they relate to each other, other people in the world and, you know, how they make sense of, you know, the nature of reality. And yet, you know, they feel the taboo. And I think the taboo itself is one of the interesting things. And I mentioned this in the conversation with Jeff. Like to me, that in itself is like one reason why we should be talking about it just because it's so simply taboo. Like, you know, that's a good enough reason as anything. But I think the real issues are the ontological issues. And I'm willing to make some strong ontological claims. And I think the evidence supports it and backs it up. And I think if we're not willing to put our stake in the ontological ground, then, you know, Go somewhere else, right? Because, like, <laughs> we need to challenge not just the epistemological, you know, perspectives. Everyone's right. Everyone's got a good viewpoint. And we've got to find a way to kind of bring it all together. Amen to that. But, like, let's really talk about the nature of reality. Let's talk about different layers and dimensions and different types of intelligences. And let's have a more provocative, threatening, challenging, sexy conversation about these topics.
0: All right. Well, let's do that then, because, <laughs> because yeah, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to retreat into a conversation about a conversation here. Like right. I, I really, uh, you know, I think that, that something must emerge from the kind of study and contemplation that you've given this. You know, to, to you know, c- correlating all of the expert testimonies that have come out of top secret programs. That yeah. you know, th- that the kind of people that have put you know, their own lives on the line in discussing this stuff. And then also, you know, comparing that to, first of all, the insane and well-documented flood of misinformation, as well as just muddy thinking about this stuff. And on top of that, uh, what, you know, people like Jung and, and McKenna both have pointed to as the stubborn refusal of these <laughs> phenomena to subject themselves to any kind of final answer, you know, yeah. to, to, to sort of give us an easy explanation. So where are you on, on this? And uh, <laughs> if you can, if you can sort of compress it, um, I think it's also worth noting that, you know, I never know who's listening and, you know, lots of long term people and maybe some new people. So just to clarify the integral community, where you know you are sort of regarded as one of the premier scholars and and practitioners of that of that philosophical scene is committed to a multiple perspective view of things and and a you know regarding perspectives as more fundamental to reality than mind or matter which are sort of like concepts that we extract from our right. experience so there's there is a, a kind of tenacious stance on synthesizing multiple different methodologies, which makes, I think already sets this conversation apart from like a cut and dry kind of, we're going to use rigorous quantitative methods, you know, trying to study these things merely empirically, merely with sort of like the traditional modern scientific toolkit. So uh, yeah, take it away, please.
1: Great. So, let me just back up a little bit as kind of you know and point out that part of what allowed me to come out and why the soul impulse kind of emerged so strongly was you know after a decade of you know basically reading 300 books and watching thousands of hours of video and audio I got to the point where I felt comfortable that the evidence is robust and it's robust from many perspectives, many angles, many types of knowledge traditions, you know, whether it's anthropology or psychology or hard physics. So there was just a way in which like the evidence just kept piling and I just kept thinking, my God, like how can there be this much evidence and yet it'd be such a silent conversation. Um, and part of it, as you pointed out, is like, there's a lot of stuff out there that's muddled thinking. There's a lot of misinformation, right? And so it makes it harder to see and identify, like, what is the the evidence and, and how do we even define evidence, right? Because that's part of what gets raised in this. It's like, what counts? Because there is really good photographic evidence, and yet a single photograph is not and hasn't, or even a group of really good verified, you know, photographs are not changing the conversation. So it actually takes more than that. Um, it, you know, it takes a paradigm shift, right? And, you know, and that's a long, slow process. Um, that usually involves a sequence of, of deaths, right? You know, as the, the famous phrase goes. So there was something about all that reading, all that kind of individual research where I just thought, you know, holy smokes, like, this is a this is a respectable conversation to be trying to champion, um, even if it's generally not viewed as such. The other thing is, you know, in my integral phase, where I was really, you know, kinda of leading academic charge, as you might you know recall, like I was, you know, some of my latest work in that space was around, you know, climate change and looking at climate change from multiple perspectives and you know what I call integral epistemological pluralism and also integral methodological pluralism, right? So we need to look at a lot of different perspectives on the topic, and we also need to take into account all the different methods that can be used by scientists and the humanities and the social scientists and, and even artists, and, right? So, like, what's our pluralist view of methodologies that allows us to get a better view of climate change as a complex phenomenon? Well, then, the natural implication of working in that led me to what I call integral ontological pluralism, And, you know, and this is where, you know, Ken and I kind of started to bump into each other around, you know, philosophically around this issue, Um, because I was highlighting that, well, you can't have epistemological pluralism and methodological pluralism without an an accompanying ontological pluralism. So what does that really mean um, to live in a, a pluralist ontology, right? Basically, I think one way to think of it is like we live in a very complex, you know, place with different social ontologies overlapping and, you know, not just, mentally living in different worldviews but i think that even translates to actually ontologically in some important way we live in different realities and then when you start bringing in the paranormal and the ufos the ets and you get into multi-dimensionality then it, and, and even you know following like the latest stuff in physics right you know then the whole idea of you know integral ontological pluralism starts to you know look cachet and, and appropriate so you asked about like, how do we, how do I make sense of all this? I think one of the best books that I've read in the last year or so is Jeff Kripal's book, The Supernatural, that he teams up with, um, you know, Whitney Stryber, the famous author in the eighties from, you know, communion kind of launched the whole kind of, you know, abduction era. And in this book, he basically makes the case. And I think in a sufficient way that the phenomenon is subjective and objective, it's subjective and objective simultaneously, and it's neither, right? And so so I think what it's asking us is to re examine our understanding of the relationship between mind and matter, and how do we relate to subject and object, and how has our current scientific methodologies failed us horribly in having a more sophisticated answer or framing or understanding of how these two aspects are related. And of course, integral theory uses the four quadrants to show that they're two sides of the same you know, coin in a sense. I mean, that's a good start. But I think the more you go into the phenomenon, it is so bizarrely objective and subjective and both and neither that I think that's what's led it to often be dismissed by so many researchers, right? They just can't get their hands around it. Um, but for me, it's exciting because my doctorate is essentially in philosophy. So to me, this is like one of the core issues at the heart of like, who are we? Why are we here? What are we doing? Right. And, and one of the main impulses behind integral theory, you know, is, is how do we reconceptualize? How do we re-metologize? How do we re-ontologize the relationship between the subject and the object? And one of the, you know, things that are presented in integral theory often looks at panpsychism, where, you know, mind goes all the way down and matter and mind, you know, arise together and always there simultaneously. And more complex matter allows for more complex mind and so forth, right? So that's one powerful view. Another one is the the dual aspect monism. And Kreipel talked about this in his new book, The Flip, right? And he points to this, you know, school of thought, which basically says that, you know, mind and matter are actually kind of an expression of a, of a deeper fundamental oneness. And that the panpsychists folks, you know, they, they drive consciousness all the way down, but then they still kind of have this problem, right, when you get down to the, the very bottom of, like, how do these two things connect? Like, right, what's, the, what's the Lego block that allows them to touch each other, right? And so, you know, regardless of whether we take a dual-aspect monist view or panpsychist view or any number of the other kind of interesting contending views, I think we need to reimagine and consider the relationship between the inside and the outside because these phenomena are showing us over and over again that we or misunderstanding that relationship.
0: Mm. Okay, so in all your talk of this, uh, my my brain tends to run down the same gutter all the time hearing about this kind of stuff, which is uh, this notion that these boundary transitions, like major evolutionary transitions like the origins of life or the origins of multicellularity or the origins of human society are... Ways for system, and again, I'm, I'm describing this entirely in the language of like functional relationships of the parts of a system, which is right. just one of these many things, but, you know, working here at Santa Fe Institute has me kind of,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: you know, Im- embedded in the lingo. Um, so take, for example, the emergence of human language, you know, speaking in sentences, uh, Martin Noack and... Natalia Komarova and David Krakauer and all these people were working on this notion that syntactic communication emerged as a way of maintaining a high signal to noise ratio in communication. Because the more circumstances, the more situations we were trying to communicate to one another, the more our language fell short and the more we had to come up with new words and then the more that the the number of words that we had to remember the relevant vocabulary within a human tribe became so great that individual people couldn't remember all the necessary words and so it, it you know uh, speaking in sentences emerged as a strategy like a recombinant strategy where we could use less memory to communicate mm-hmm. more and that would drop the error rate down so that this this whole notion that these crises between one paradigm and, and another paradigm represent a crisis of basically noise and mm-hmm. error. And that there's something, mm-hmm. there's something in that that I hear when we talk about the insufficiency of our language and our, of our tools to communicate yeah. the complexity of these phenomena, this like tetratic mm-hmm. logic instead of a binary logic and a new syntax a syntax beyond the subject, verb, object syntax that we use. So like it almost challenges the whole like integral epistemological, methodological, ontological framing of things. Like even that kind of sophistication seems to like stumble on this because we're, we're, we're still sort of bound to a subject object binary. And so my question, I guess, is just like, how do you imagine a, or, or, or like, do you think it's even sort of possible for any one of us to imagine how a new syntax might erupt out of this space that right. makes sense of these things? And like, what, what kind of knowledge production occurs in, the, in those new spaces?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And I think in hearing you speak to kind of the language issue as just an illustration of a larger point you're making, I really am drawn to the notion of expressive capacity. And, you know, and I got this from Arthur Brock, who works with, you know, Holochain and, you know, some of the work he's done in, in that space to kind of basically try and come up with a new syntax of that gets out of the binary of, you know, how we've tended to kind of code, um, you know, based on certain categories of dividing information. He's tried to take the more organic kind of metaphor to support um, the work he's doing there. And, and I use the notion of expressive capacity a lot in the meta-impact work. So to have integration, what occurs prior to integration is differentiation. And so you can't integrate unless you differentiate. And the more you differentiate, the more you can integrate. It's, it's almost counterintuitive. We often, you know, as integralists, often get focused on the integration and the wholeness and don't fully appreciate that actually what comes before that is partness. And the more partness we have, the better in the sense that it enables a richer integration of those parts across each other to get a more multidimensional integration opposed to a simple integration. And so with language, I think, you know, we really are lacking the expressive capacity to talk about these phenomena. And we do get pulled in through our own enculturation, our own biology into the subject-object paradigm. And so I don't think it's going to be easy to overcome that um, but I think when you look at some of the more extreme experiences people have, one of the things that's constant, that's just like kind of what's always there in, in this literature is telepathy, right? And so so that's an even interesting consideration that these um, non-human intelligences are always generally, you know, like 90 plus percent of the time communicating to us telepathically. So they're not even, you know using language in the vocal cord sense that like they're basically, they're giving us information and somehow that information gets translated into English or German or Japanese or whatever our mother tongue is and we understand it, right? So that's curious. Like how does that even fit with, you know, like the theory of language evolution that you were presenting, which I think is probably true, right? I think there's a lot to be said about like that was the strategy of differentiation of language into you know, sound and words and linguistic systems, right? But is that the only avenue for thinking and right? And when you look at animal consciousness, which is one of my, you know, specialties, right? Then animals generally appears to think in pictures, right? And so a lot of telepathic experiences with animals is more picture based. And, 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 and so, and then you also get these stories and a lot of them, people getting downloads from different types of intelligences or different sources where a ton of information is packed into basically like kind of a crystalline form where so it's like quantum computing so it's like what's the world look like when we really transition to quantum computing where we're no longer bound by the binary but we are living in a multi-dimensional series of potential you know wave and particle constructs that are occurring simultaneously we're not having to choose particle or wave right that we can allow for a multiplicity of any number of scenarios that increases our computing power and, you know, and our epistemological power, ontological power, our methodological power, right? So I think, and this is why I like Kripal's work so much is because I think he's really struggling on this edge, like what is the language that we need to be fumbling into to try and talk about the way in which this phenomenon doesn't fit in the typical subject object categories because it's both, it's combined and it's neither, so what does that really mean? right? And so, and, you know, when you look at the research they did in the, you know, ha- Skinwalker Ranch, right? You know, where's you know, Bigelow coming in with, you know, millions of dollars funding. Talk, all talk
0: a little bit more about that particular historical event, I think is yeah. just to frame it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a great book out on it um, with George Knapp and, and, you know, it's one of the co-authors. and recently, you know, um, Jeremy Corbell also did a documentary on it. Um, and, you know, there's essentially what would most likely be called by most people a portal in utah in a particular area uh, on this ranch and there's a long history of strange phenomena occurring on that ranch because it, the the portal is right there um and you know and the phenomena have ranged from poltergeist activity um ghosts um cryptids have seen big cats bigfoots you know other creatures that shouldn't exist UFOs, strange, evil presences, giant wolves, you know, like, just like the, the range of phenomena is just like kind of cuts across all the categories of bizarre. And so Bigelow bought this property 20 plus years ago, and, you know, basically brought in a team of, you know, PhD researchers with great credentials. And they spent several years with all the scientific equipment they could get their hands on with all the money they needed to conduct the experiments and to really try and capture this phenomenon. And most of them had very strange experiences, not all of them, um, which also raises interesting issues like why some, not others. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the things that kept happening is like some strange phenomenon would happen over in one field on one night and, and it wouldn't ever happen again there. And then something totally different and bizarre would happen in the trees over on the ridge on the other side, right? So there was no shortage of bizarre paranormal events that you know spanned the whole range of you know documented weirdness but it never was repeatable so the scientific method was never really able to be used even though they got a lot of data in a sense they got a lot of stories and anecdotes and people kept having weird experiences and um you know so you know and the reputable scientists so clearly something beyond our normal sense of real is happening there and yet it was as if the phenomenon itself, and this is what a lot of people report, the phenomenon itself has some quality of intelligence that it's playing games with us, that it's, there's this trickster element where it's like, in, you know, it knows what we're doing. It's, it's two steps ahead of us. It's dangling some bait in front of us and pulling us over here and then looping around behind us and scaring the shit out of us, right? So it, it, there's some bizarre trickster intelligence that occurs with a lot of this phenomenon that suggests some weird meta realm of something, right? This is very much in keeping
0: with, uh, you know, science fiction writer, John C. Wright's, his story of his personal conversion from atheism to being a a born again Catholic in in midlife, where he said, you know, it's interesting because I've read his books both before and after this, this event took place for him. But, you know, he, he, he mentioned how he was, committed to his rational atheism and as a rational person decided that he had to take seriously the theological argument that a transcendental intelligence chooses whether it appears to you or not. Right. That, you know, that there is a sense that like, how could we possibly be expected to catch something that's smarter than we are? Yeah. Uh, or to detect something that whose cognitive processes are so more complex than us than it's like a cell inferring yeah. that you're part of a lawyer, you know, right. like give me a break. So he ma- he issued a challenge to God, like, like a, a like a legit mm. atheist would do and right. says, if basically if you are, you know, I accept that this is logically consistent. So if you do exist, show yourself to me. And then two days later, he had a heart attack that put him in the hospital. And he said he had three, spirit visitations while in the oh, hospital yeah. very Dickensian yeah. um, wow. and that by the end of it he was convinced that he he, he became a Catholic and accepted yeah. and then wrote this this fabulous although you know very bizarre space opera the uh, the eschaton <laughs> sequence it's like uh-huh. a thousand pages of science fiction kind of expanding the like Olaf stapled in cosmology yeah. mm-hmm. into this more detailed view where he talks about layers of ecological succession as mm. as different races come into uh, maturity in the cosmos, and then you know generate new ecosystems and new worlds of life within themselves, and that it, you know his his sort of uh, almost sort of like a Mahayana Buddhist stance no. after that, and that he started he started working out in his narratives. Uh, which again, uh, to shout out Avi Loeb, who, who was, you know, had a, you know, you mentioned other people in the integral community who yeah. have been forthright about their alien experiences. Stuart Davis is one of those people right. who was on Weird Studies. Highly recommend that episode of Weird Studies podcast to anybody who who wants a truly compelling and bizarre uh, story <laughs> in which pe- multiple, you know, you have multiple witnesses of these these kinds of events. Right. And I remember years ago, Stuart interviewed Avi uh, about his argument that due to the, you know, if we're to accept Big Bang theory, then the conditions of the early cosmos right. uh, would have been actually in some respects more, uh, more conducive to life. Mm. That the, the temperature that would support biochemical processes was right. more evenly distributed throughout the universe. And, and so, uh, you know, Avi's got this, this kind of provocative stance that we may actually be late to the table and that we may be like living in a world that 's just positively suffused with intelligence billions of years more sophisticated than our own, anyway, no. that may all be a tangent because you know that is, that is sort of uh, you know in some sense my like left brain attempt to right. render this in terms I can understand
1: The point you're making earlier that I think there is this participatory dimension mm-hmm. right, and then that also doesn 't totally fit into the subject object binary. Because there's a way in which as people start to have, you know, one-siding, they start to have more and like, you know, or, and even though some people who go out and want to have these experiences don't, but, you know, so it's not like you get to choose whether or not you participate, but there is a participatory dimension. And and that's a very fascinating aspect of, you know, that this phenomena is responsive and engaged, right? And it's, um, you know, and it was actually in reading the Hunt for Skinwalker, you know, ranch, there's a quote towards the end where basically it's saying, you know, the Bigfoot people hate this because they don't want any paranormal activity because they're trying to prove this is a biological animal that just hasn't been discovered. The ghost hunter <laughs> because they don't want anything to do with the UFO people because that's going to make them seem even crazier. The UF nuts and bolts people don't want anything to do with this because they're looking for trace materials on the ground from the landings. You know, the paranormal UFO people don't want anything to do, you know, and basically they this quote goes through this list of like all these different paranormal camps who, Are you know hating each other because they're trying to like protect their little space of paranormal and they're afraid through association with these other crazies they're going to be delegitimized? And as I read that quote, I thought, oh my gosh, we need a meta view, we need an integral view, we need to step back because, at the end of the day, while I believe there are UFOs and I believe there are um intelligences you know inhabiting those craft, if we want to call them craft, they're not all craft, but. So, so that's one part of it, but that's not even the most interesting part. The interesting part is it's actually weirder and more bizarre and more multidimensional than even that, right? Like, you know, so like except U of Os, except ETs, and like that's just the beginning because it only spirals out from there, right? And so like this is why I launched the Institute of Exo Studies. Because I wanted to back up from UFO and ET hypothesis, because I don't want to get pulled into that. Because I think that's just one piece of the crazy pie, right? And so, how do we get enough meta distance to really talk about living in a multidimensional multiverse with all the potential implications of that?
0: Yeah, and and just to to add one tiny annotation to this, you know, it seems as though science is, in some respects, the you know the the sort of fundamental assumptions or the strategies of science would actually support this. I haven't gotten anybody at SFI to agree with me on this particular point, but it does seem to me that if we are seeking an explanation, if we're seeking a model of the cosmos that is as simple and as, as parsimonious as possible, if we're looking for the lowest algorithmic complexity yeah. of the equation of our universe, it, it's not going to be an equation like the kind we're looking for where we're, we're trying to answer why this and not everything else, right? It's just going to be an equation that says this. And like, you know, likewise, uh, you know, Richard Doyle, I've been in a correspondence with him and I, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he, uh, you know, Penn state professor who's done a lot of exploration into the, the uh, you know, n dimensional identity that is uh, disclosed by the psychedelic experience you know and how right. that that sort of prepares us he believes for a condition of transhumanism in which we've moved beyond these the you know the, the sort of naive simplicity of the subject object mm. distinction yeah you know he was referencing I, I cannot recall last night some philosopher who he felt had made a really compelling argument that we can say sort of consciousness is in formal mathematical terms and factor out any kind of content mm. or, uh, you know, object or subject, right. so simply, simply, you know, it, it's the remainder when, mm. we, when we make everything as simple as possible, right. which to loop that back into, you know, people like Philip K. Dick, one of Richard Doyle's favorite authors mm. and, and topics of conversation, then, you know, I, I remember in high school reading the collected essays of Phil Dick and encountering for the first time this notion that came up again in uh this book that i was reading in class with your wife so many years ago (laughs) on becoming aware which you know makes a similar argument that we can't say in any concrete terms that people are crazy right can only we can only say whether or not their reported subjective experience correlates with other experiences Mm -hmm. yeah and so like i don't know there's there's something in the sort of ontological pluralism we're walking a tightrope Now over the sort of ravine of letting everyone believe whatever the hell they want. But I don't know, where do you, where, where, what is all of this insight for you?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, and this was one of the bodies of evidence that really kind of supported me with kind of coming out. And that is our, you know, mainstream and progressive scientific theories are totally capable of supporting this. Right. So it's like, everything that we've talked about today is, is, is not outside what's explainable in, you know, the, the current, you know, scientific approaches in many cases, right? When we look at the, you know, the new physics, we look at quantum theory, you know, we look at, you know, even the research with psi and, you know, like, so, so there's our progressive views of physics and complexity science are so far ahead of the conversation that they're actually much more capable of folding some of this multidimensionality than we might realize so it's not even that the multidimensionality is unexplainable with current theories it in many cases is right so that's one piece the other piece is yeah i think we're in a post truth world you know in part thanks to, to president trump and and so what does that mean and it's almost as if the pluralism of the academy has been unleashed onto the mainstream Right. You know, so so the a perspectival madness of postmodernism that was rampant in, you know, the university setting is now in the mainstream political, cultural setting. And it's a very disorienting space. And and this is part of one of the challenges we're facing moving forward uh, is that, you know, we can no longer tell the truth from the non truth. Right. You know, it's like there are really good legitimate photographs and trace evidence and all kinds of physical evidence for UFO craft and, and other kind of otherworldly realities. And yet there are so many fakes and so many, you know, like it's like, so how do we sort through that? You, you almost can't. And, you know, people, you know, I was reading a book called American Cosmic. And this woman is a religious studies um, professor and she's looking at the, the techies in Silicon Valley and how a lot of them are, you know, exploring kind of otherworldly intelligences and technologies and bringing that into the work they're doing um, in Silicon Valley. So, she's talking to a guy who's an expert in photo analysis, and and he creates a group where they go out and they take pictures of UFOs um, or UAPs, and you're only allowed to be in the group, like if you really have good credentials and you're not involved with faking or hoaxing and and that you're really committed to really capturing this on film. But he points out that it's becoming harder and harder to distinguish the fakes from the real ones. That, you know, five years ago, he could do that. But now the, the computer technology, CGI, is such that like, he, it's harder and harder and in some cases you can't even tell. So we're entering into an augmented and virtual space. And, and we're seeing this with our technology. And, and we're seeing it in our politics, and, and I think it's happening on, on a big scale. So I think we, we are going into a space that's going to be ontologically fragmented, right? And uh, highly pluralistic and, and solipsistic. Um, and so how do we navigate that culturally? Like, I don't know. But I think, I think we're largely unprepared for the amount of, you know, fragmentation that's going to come with that you know, even a broad empiricism, I don't think protects us or, or gets us through this process. Um, So I'm not sure. I think, I think it's going to be challenging because, you know, we're going to go from everyone's epistemological view goes to everyone's ontological reality goes, right? And then like, we're really unanchored. And I think there'll be a flourishing that comes with that. I think there'll be a lot of benefits. And I think it's also going to be very problematic and chaotic.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, in, in some sense, if, if the, the world space is like the, I don't know, semantic unit of some newospheric internal chatter, again, again, to this sort of notion that the, the proliferation of noisy and discongruous realities seems to suggest that we're on the, the threshold of some, some new uh, order yeah you know and, and again, like Terence McKenna talked about this. He talked about the UFO appearing in history at the moment that we're uh, you mentioned this in and this in the Salzman interview, and this is a, this is a you know a common strain in UFO discourse that there's a, a, a significant uptick in UFO sightings and conversation around the time of the the, the dropping of the first atom bombs. And, you know, a lot of people have looked at that in terms of, you know, maybe it's some sort of cosmic nanny state, making sure we don't blow ourselves up or harm the aura of the planet. But then there's this other, there's this other sense in which you listen to people like William Irwin Thompson talk about that, that phase in history, and Bill Thompson, who is not afraid of pushing the mystic frontiers of polite conversation, um, you know, he sees it as that this is the moment that we realized that we were all downwind of one another's fallout. And it was sort of the the moment that we became aware of ourselves as, you know, each nation and by extension, each citizen of each nation as focal points of a planetary, uh, a single planetary system, you know, Stuart Brand's uh, getting that blue marble photograph uh, declassified and like how that was the, the prime image of the 20th century. And then Terrence McKenna says, well, so the UFO shows up now not necessarily because uh, of any kind of existential risk to humankind that it's trying to avert how, although mm-hmm. uh, we do have so many compelling weird testimonies from people working these nuclear bases, yeah. the, the missiles going dud and, and that kind of thing. So maybe we should come back, circle back around to that. But um, that we're just at a point now where we have like, like a child entering puberty, we have learned that there is an other, you know, we've, it's like the UFO is like humankind discovering girls or boys. Right. You know, there's this yeah. sense in which with the, the other, the horizon of the other has moved beyond the tribe living over the, over the next hill, you know, and past the nation living across the ocean yeah. a, a, into this, this like complex manifold of like polysocial realities. And even past that into a question of what are we even looking for? Cause we have now this, all of our theories about life and intelligence and mind are limited to the, you know, the N equals one sample of this planet. Yeah. And so there is this projection into that space. So I don't know, I think, I feel like there's, there's kind of two things there. One is the way that this is sort of a, an invitation into a consideration of the other and what that means, at yeah. planetary culture. And then the other is really what the hell is going on with these nuclear bases and like the, the, the sort of uh, exo interventionism that we seem to be observing, you know, which also sort of manifests in terms of like abductions and battle mutilations and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So a few things that weave some of that together. So one, you know, so going back to the post truth era we're in, I think it's, it's forcing a re engagement with ontology because we're asking ourselves, how can we anchor truth claims? Right? Like, like, wow, this is craziness. You know, like how, So we're having to kind of come up with new methodologies, new kinds of discrimination, new ways of betting, new ways of trying to figure out, you know, truth from post-truth. And what does that even mean? Right. And, you know, like we just look at gender. Right. What's happening with gender? Like it is exploding. Right. You know, and, you know, there's so many different sexual orientations now. Like I can't even keep track. Like, seriously, it's like there's over 10. You know, and, and just like the gender binary is totally out the door now, right? know, it's, you know, it's on passports where, you know, we're changing, you know, the census data, like, you know, it'll take some time, but it's like, so we're no longer like, that's one example of a place where we're finding our language to break free of that binary, right, of, of you know, boy and girl. And, and so we're also seeing like in anthropology, there's an ontological turn. Right, And we're also seeing a philosophy, there's an ontological turn. So in a lot of traditions that have been extremely kind of bathed in postmodern discourse are grabbing for ontology and trying to figure out how to reweave ontology into what they're doing. So I think as we get to this you know, extreme post-truth phase, we're also engaging in a deeper consideration of ontology. Right. I don't think the post-truth stuff's going to go away. I think it's going to stay in many ways. But I think there's going to be a new engagement with ontology. And there's even like new materialisms. Right. There's new kinds of thinking about what does ontology even mean? Right. Especially when we get into the subtle realms. Right. And not just the gross realm, the physical realm. Right. And we get in, you know, where imagination has a causal power that isn't available in the gross realm. Right? And so how do we make sense of kind of the ontology of these different kind of domains or spheres? And so we're going to have to develop a more sophisticated discourse around what's real. And Kripke calls this the new real, right? That, that we're <laughs> in the process of kind of discovering the new real, right? That's kind of beyond the, the subject-object binary, um, where the new real is some version of, yes, in some cases they're subject object some cases they're together, in some cases it's neither, right? And I think this is a, so going into the, the other, I think this is one of the things that makes this whole topic so scary for us. I mean, we look at how tribal we are. We don't do well just with competing political platforms, right? And, and, you know, the racism and the sexism, the homophobia, you know, and so on and so on. Like, I mean, our world is just replete with all kinds of othering, right? And so if you introduce the alien other, whatever that means, Right then, like, wow, you know, and so a lot of the literature basically says that they're not going to present themselves in any demonstrative way until we've get past that point, right you know that remains to be seen, like I, I think there's some ways in which it's already the crack is there, and the light's getting through, and maybe coming into deeper open contact with some of the other types of intelligences might support us in some ways to kind of get past some of our tribalism, though there will be certain factors where it will reinforce the tribalism. So, you know, it's going to be an interesting process. But I think humans are part of a larger galactic humanity. So what does that mean? Like, and how do we understand that? Right. It's only a matter of time. And I mean like 10 years before we confirm that there's biomicro life on one of the other, you know, orbs in our solar system, right? Be it, you know, Mars or, or one of the, you know, s- moons around Saturn or, you know, so we're not that far from discovering, you know, some form of mini life elsewhere. And as soon as that happens, then the floodgates are going to start to open around the implications of that, right? And, you know, and the statistics of how many, you know, Earth-like planets that are out there, um, are so mind blowing that like, how can we assume that there are not other types of intelligences? But I think this issue of the other is a really powerful and potent one. And part of why it's, it's so shadowy, right? Because we're really going to be confronted with some, some deep biases and assumptions about who we are when we enter into some kind of more open conversation around the likelihood and the evidence that there's not just a few different species out there, but there's actually hundreds Right, and one of the things that comes through in the literature and in the testimonies is that most of them are bipedal, like us, and that there's some sacred geometry around the, the pentagram of the five. There's something about that structure that shows up over and over again with a wide range of non human intelligences, even though there's other shapes and forms out there, but that's a kind of a cosmic template that we come across over and over again. And so, in that sense, humanity is much larger than our particular embodied expression of it
0: that's interesting you know there was a there was a conference here on evolution at SFI a few months ago where we were talking about uh, developmental bias and what this means is that you know given the, the the range of all possible forms produced by evolution why do we see so few of them and they've tackled this very rigorously over here there are scaling laws involved, et cetera, but a lot of it has to do it has to come down to this this uh, like paleontologist Simon Conway Morris argument about strong convergence, and right. and it's been interesting that you know that, that the notion that under similar physical constraints life finds similar solutions again and again and yeah. again independently. Noted biologist E.O. Wilson, like one Good. of the most respected evolutionary thinkers in the world came out and said that he thinks the the sort of Star Trek, anthropoid, human convergent, uh, you know, that if if we're going to encounter the uh, intelligent aliens out there, that they probably will look something a lot like us because of similar tool use requirements, similar social communication requirements, you know, having a free pair of limbs with some grabbers on it, you know, is really helpful. Having an expressive face, of some kind that can be sensed by other members of your community. Yeah. And so it starts seeming, you know, yeah, we're, we're sort of grading into the plausible here. But uh, I, I want to like dogleg, since you brought up Kripel, and you know, Kripal, uh spoke so favorably about the work of Eric Wargo in mm. his book Time Loops.
1: Yeah, uh, that book is amazing.
0: Yeah, so you know, Kripal calling Time Loops the sort of most uh, heroic or whatever, like, virtuosic work of paranormal uh coverage since jacques Vallee's passport to magonia which is really sort of you know a definitive text in the exo conversation
1: yeah i bought the book after i read kripal's endorsement i was like oh my god yeah
0: yeah yeah so i'm like i'm i'm working to get eric on the on the show it's it's gonna happen here soon but um you know eric's got an interesting point that sort of dovetails into this question about the the human extraterrestrial, which is that so many of these disclosure reports from people suggest that at least some of these beings are future humans. And Eric Wargo's book talks a lot about that there may be a simple way to explain so much of this uh, telepathic and, and other forms of paranormal phenomena if... We consider the possibility as Jacques Vallée actually also gave a TEDx talk on this that there may be some sort of like Backwash that right. you know that time is not that you know that even even here at SFI in the in the research theme on on complex time They're talking about arrows of time
1: mm-hmm. right.
0: you know, and, and like that there being an arrow of time that's about entropy and an adaptive arrow of time That's about yeah. the emergence of order and that any system you look at is some unfathomably complex manifold of different temporal vectors. Yeah. So, like, I guess I'm just sort of inviting you to talk about what you make of the conversation around the extraterrestrial humanoid as some sort of intimation of a possible or actual future of human evolution.
1: I think that is absolutely one layer of what's happening, right? that, you know, some of the beings that are being encountered are future versions of what we would consider ourselves. You know, I was at South by Southwest two years ago and listening to a NASA scientist, and they were describing how if we lived on Mars, you know, for, you know, X number of generations, that basically we would start to get skinnier, we would get taller, our heads would get bigger, right? They basically started describing what a gray looks like. Right. You know, that's that a lot of the features we associate with kind of the classical alien are actual some of the natural ways in which our own morphology would shift under different gravity conditions. Right. And so, you know, I, I found that very provocative and interesting, you know, that that is the future us. Like as you know, as we follow Elon to Mars and, and create a, you know a, a base on the moon and then a colony on Mars in the next 50 years, that as people are born on Mars, grow up on Mars, have children on Mars that we are going to become a different species genetically because of the way we interface with the environmental conditions there and that those versions of ourselves are going to start to look much more like what we think of as aliens. So I thought that was fascinating kind of trajectory of time. So, so yeah, and this is the whole thing with exostudies. Like, yes, some of them are future versions of ourselves, right, coming back for different reasons, and then some of them aren't. Right. And this is the thing, you know, it's like so many kind of UFO ET enthusiasts often want to kind of put everything in one box. Like they're all bad. They're all good. They're all future versions of ourselves. I think it's much messier and chaotic than that. Right. Um, You know, I think some of them are actual, you know, different types of beings that come from the past. Like the mantis beings are often considered to be very ancient and to and live thousands of years. Right. Um, You know, Stuart described, you know, his powerful experience of that. Right. And Stuart, by the way, was one of the reasons why I came out because he and I were exchanging emails and comparing notes and kind of egging each other on. And it's like, OK, no, you go. No, 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 you go. OK, okay I'll do it. I'll, you know. So, <laughs> I, you know, so he came out with his audio documentary before I did. But, you know, we were kind of, you know, supporting each other <laughs> as fellow integralists. And then like getting back to the nukes, you know, it's like. Right. So as those future versions of ourselves coming back and trying to save us from planetary annihilation, maybe it seems it's a, it's a fair assumption. And, you know, being part of a larger galactic family, like it makes sense that, you know, if we're detonating nuclear bombs that people would notice. Right. You know, in, in other realms, other dimensions, like, you know, that the thought is that that kind of blast actually penetrates across multiple layers of, of reality. And so it's kind of like a, a signal for like, oh, boy, what's going on over there? Let's go check it out. And, you know, and, and so the amount of evidence around nuclear bases, and UFOs, is immense, right? You know, so, so clearly they have showed up to, actually, to interface with that part of humanity, though I think there's also good evidence that they've been coming for quite a long time, right? Though I think they started coming en masse once we developed nuclear um, capabilities, <laughs> So, you know, you,
0: you mentioned going over this with, with Stuart Davis, and I just, I feel like it's important to interject here that Stuart furiously refuses any kind of attempt to make sense of his experiences. Yep. He is quite happy to not tell a story about this. Actually, yep. rather unhappy, you know, when, when uh, Phil Ford and J.F. Martel encourage him to explain what he thinks is going on. And so there's clearly a sort of dispositional difference between the two of you and how you handle this. And I'm curious, you know, that is his strategy, I think, for avoiding confirmation bias and just sort of allowing his, when it's so unfathomably difficult to try and figure out how you would study these things with the tools that we have, it is, it is obviously very easy to allow uh quasi-religious narratives to flood in to that yeah. gap and i uh, and I'm, I'm curious you know since you are you know leading a group of scholars through this in in a course this year what are the kinds of of strategies that you would offer or encourage for people to remain with the weirdness of these phenomena yeah. without collapsing the sort of wave function before yeah. it's time
1: so this is great Yeah, and this is, you know, this is kind of my core orientation, right, with exo-studies is that I don't want to collapse the wave function. I want to just say it's a lot of weird stuff happening. We're far from making sense of it. Like, I think there's a lot of layers of truth to the different interpretations, but none really reigns the day, and we really got to stay open to this. And, you know, the position that Stewart's in is very common, and, and Kreibel points this out, for example, in his new book, The Flip, Right. Where people with a scientific orientation and background have a extreme experience of consciousness or a mystical event or a paranormal event. And they basically flip over to recognizing the truth of those realities. But they often are resistant to trying to label it or put too much, you know, of a frame around it. You know, similar to Stuart, where it's like he won't deny the impact and kind of the ontological nature of it. You know, and, and John Mack talked about the ontological shock of these experiences with the abductees he worked with, right? Because it just, it shocks you to your core in in many cases, right? And so that's kind of like undeniable on a first person, you know, cellular level. And that the experience is so paradoxical that you can't really put too many frames around it if if you stay true to the experience. But a lot of people kind of, it's too much and they will kind of reduce it down into this narrative or that narrative and, and that's fine for myself, I've had enough of my own experiences to feel the paradoxical nature of those phenomena. But I think in contrast to Stuart, you know, though I think he's doing this in his own way. I'm feeling more a call of kind of like an ambassadorship, right. Of like trying to, to help create spaces where more of us can gather, hence the course in the fall, right. in, in September through December to like have these conversations and keep it open. I think one of the core strategies you asked about is hermeneutic generosity a sense of critical thinking but but from a place of generosity right around where we just stay open right um you know i think you know postmodernism has been so jaded the hermeneutics of suspicion and kind of you know that i think when we approach these different phenomena we need a very different orientation um so you know that would be one um deep listening right would be another deep listening to other people's experiences and their narratives. Um, I think an, an examination of your own unconscious commitments to materialism. And so as an integralist, as a transpersonalist, I thought I was way clear of this (laughs) until I started, you know, having experiences and doing more reading and research in this area and started realizing how deep my own materialistic reductionistic tendencies go. In spite of my intellectual, kind of critique and desire to be, be way beyond that but what I realize is that I've been growing up in a culture that has been successful in encoding in into me in spite of myself a, a certain orientation to a kind of scientific materialism so I think kind of being on the lookout for how that shows up in ourself and not that that's all bad I think that it helps serve as a counterpoint to you know you going off in certain directions so I think there's a usefulness to it but I think being aware of how we've been enculturated, um, regardless of what we might think in terms of our self-identity, is, is, is important. And just getting out of the disciplines, right? You know, so part of what we do in the course is, right, we have two books each week. So it's 36 different books. But they're books from all kinds of different places. They're not just UFO books, right? They're books from philosophy of mind. They're books from media studies. They're books from you know, the latest in quantum thinking, their books on religious studies, or, you know, and it's basically like kind of reaching out in a meta view of like, to really bring any kind of justice to this inquiry, we need to draw on the best thinking from as many different kinds of disciplines as we can, because the phenomenon is that big, and that mysterious, and that paradoxical. So unless we're, you know, anything short of kind of a a meta integrative approach, we're, and even that is going to fail. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, it definitely will. So,
1: <laughs> so uh,
0: this is the moment uh, where I, I ask if someone wants to throw their moth mind at this particular flame, where, yeah. where do they find out more information and sign up for your course?
1: Yeah. So exostudies.org. Um, you see the course it gives a nice overview. Um, there's an update section, you know, where I'll be posting this conversation uh, along with others. And, and yeah, just reached out to me through the contact page there. And, and I've been really enjoying the emails I've been getting from folks. And, and as I mentioned, like, that's really encouraged me to kind of go forth, right. And to keep kind of putting myself out there. Cause I just keep discovering how many people are having their own experiences of one sort or another and feeling very alone um, or only able to talk about it with a select group of people, you know, so it's been exciting for me to just see how many people are engaged in this even though it's not as public as as it would be nice for it to be
0: yeah remember everybody rule 34 you know if it exists there is porn of it and there's a there's a whole community and then i guess rule 35 would be if you're not sure if it exists or not there is and is not and both is and is not and neither is and is not porn of it Right.
1: right, so <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: awesome.: Well, dude, it's it's always a treat to talk to you. I want to give you the same invitation I gave at the end of the last call, which is I, I believe I did, I typically do, which is to imagine into the unborn future audience of this show, and mm-hmm. like and I don't know, what do you hope that they get out of this conversation, or like what what question might you pose them in mm-hmm. regards to all of this?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, I think it's, it's like, how might we collectively engage in a more sophisticated conversation around these anomalous experiences, these reports, the wide range of evidence? You know, how might we engage that in a way that helps us collectively explore and understand in a more meaningful way what it means to live in a multi-dimensional multiverse mm-hmm. you know so yeah that's my sense of, of what i would like
0: <laughs> awesome thanks so much John.
1: yeah always a pleasure michael i look forward to the next conversation this show is supported by listeners like you through patreon.com
0: michael garfield and this week's featured patron is Mike Schwab of KnowYourMeme.com. KnowYourMeme is a really curious harbinger of the kinds of academic intellectual conversations bound to erupt in the years to come around the artifacts and trace fossils left by our web goofery. It's a really cool resource where you can go look for the history and the detail about a given meme, like Grumpy Cat, rest in peace. KnowYourMeme.com, check them out. Also, thanks to MindPod Network, the podcasting network of which future fossils is a part. Go to MindPodNetwork.com and check out all of the shows. They're all wonderful in their own unique way. And if you'd like to offer any feedback, you can email me at voice memos or text to podcast at gmail.com. And if you do leave a voice memo, there's a very strong possibility I will play it on a future episode of this show. So have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon.